All indications are that the Earth's population, particularly in first world countries, is more sedentary right now than it has ever been. Generally speaking, we are very inactive. This isn't necessarily an observation of laziness, but rather that the demands of life have significantly changed. Jobs have become increasingly more sedentary. What people do for entertainment has become more sedentary. But perhaps the greatest factor in this change is that transportation has radically changed throughout history. We sit in our cars while we drive to various locations. But for most of the history of the world, the overwhelmingly dominant form of transportation was walking. And when we think of walking, we generally think of activity or exercise, an event that we may do with the family in the park or something along those lines. Occasionally, for lunch, your pastors will go down to the grocery store just down the street at Hen House. It's about a quarter mile south of here just to grab something to eat. And inevitably, when that happens, especially if Pastor Rick or Pastor Bob are involved, someone always suggests that we walk, which I think is a horrible idea. Now, if the weather is nice, I can enjoy it. But we have some pastors here who choose to walk in less than 30-degree weather. In my opinion, that's crazy. I, I do not understand it. Thousands of years of technology has led to the point where we finally have vehicles with heat in them. Why would we choose to suffer? I recognize that I'm a bit dramatic about this, but generally, I would choose to drive. In our text this morning, however, and for most of history, that wasn't a choice that was available to most people. Walking was living. For most of the history of the world, walking was everything. It was constant. There was exceptions to this, of course. Some may have had donkeys, or Paul sailed on ships, for example, in the New Testament. But by and large, people in the New Testament community and throughout most of history have walked so much more than we do. It was constant. So it makes sense that Paul often uses the word walk as an illustration for life in general. Our text this morning is one of those passages. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we encounter a fascinating topic and a fascinating command. Walking in Jesus is the theme of this text. Walking in Jesus. We encounter a command in Colossians 2, 6-7 that's familiar to many of us and therefore we often glance right over it. It's actually a strange command. In our text, in verse 6, Paul gives his readers a command to walk in Jesus. Walk in Jesus. It, it's strange terminology. If you want to have the biblical context that many of you have, and, and you were just told to walk in a person, be incredibly confusing. How does one walk in someone else? The prepositions here are key. Paul doesn't say walk by Jesus, or walk near Jesus, or walk around Jesus. He says walk in Jesus. Jesus. It's a command for us to follow in all of our lives. 
Walk in Him. When Paul uses that word walk, again, remember the constancy of this in in his world, the frequency of it. You, You couldn't get away from walking. Paul uses walk imagery regularly in his letters. And for Paul, your walk, it's your life. It's everything. How you walk, for Paul, is how you live. Again, Paul employs walk imagery in several of his letters. His focus on a Christian's walk is a focus on their conduct, how they live their lives. For Paul, a believer's walk is everything that follows the moment when one receives Christ. Let me say that again. For Paul, a believer's walk is everything that follows the moment when one receives Christ. That's actually exactly what he says in verse 6. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, just like you relied on Christ entirely for your salvation, walk in him. You received him, So from that point forward, walk in him. He is your source of spiritual life. So make him the the sustenance of your spiritual life, Paul seems to be saying. He is the one by whom you are saved. So make him the one by whom you walk. Walk in him. I think it's clear to us, but it's worth pointing out that when Paul at the end of verse 6 says, walk in him, the him points to Christ Jesus the Lord that's referenced earlier in verse 6. So what does it mean? What does it mean to walk in Jesus? Well, first, let's recognize that Paul is using comparative terminology in verse 6. He's calling them, watch this, to Walk in Jesus just like, comparative terminology, just like they received Jesus. Look at verse 6 again. Therefore, as, or just as, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. He's making a comparison. Walk in him just like you received him. In other words, just like you relied on Christ entirely for your salvation, Walk in him. Rely on him entirely for your walk. We get further clarity on the meaning of walking in Jesus when we look beyond this passage. This is not the first time in the book of Colossians that Paul has employed this walk terminology to the Colossians. In the beginning of the letter, he was praying for the Colossians and he reported his prayer to them. In that prayer, he's essentially praying that they would receive and apply everything that he's about to tell them. So turn back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul is praying, and here's what he prays. That you will walk, there's our term, in a manner worthy of the Lord. The first time Paul uses this walk terminology, he presents it in a little bit of a different way than he does in chapter 2. He says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's his prayer. 
That's his prayer for the Colossians before he lays out all that he, that he writes in the book of Colossians. He's, he's praying that they would receive what he's about to tell them. And then in Colossians chapter 2, we get to that point where he tells them to do what he just prayed they would do. And in chapter 2, he says it a little bit of a different way. First, he said, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now he says, walk in him, back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Walk in a manner that's worthy of Jesus. Walk in Jesus. I think there's maybe three different things that are emphasized that we could draw this walking in Jesus meaning. What does it mean to walk in Jesus? I, I think there's probably three kind of thoughts in the mind of Paul. The first would be that we are informed by him. That we are informed by him, obedient to what he commanded. He has given us instruction for how we must walk, so be informed by him. I think that's part of walking in Jesus or walking worthy of Jesus is walking, living in such a way that we are informed by him. Another thought in Paul's mind is that our walk is enabled by Jesus. It's not just informed by Jesus, but it's actually enabled by Jesus. Paul only calls them to walk in Jesus after he has identified that they have received Jesus. He says, just as you received him, just as you entered into a relationship with you, he is now in you, so walk in him. It is the spiritual walk that is enabled by Christ because you have received him that is in Paul's mind when he calls them to walk in Jesus. It's informed by Jesus. It's enabled by Jesus. And lastly, it's modeled after Jesus. Walking in Jesus is to live a life that's modeled after Christ himself. It's walking like him. Walking in a way that is consistent with Jesus. Walking in a way that points to Jesus. Following his example. Walking in Jesus means living our, way, our lives in a way that is informed by him, enabled through him, and modeled after him. So Paul calls his readers, walk in Jesus. Walk in Jesus. Which is an intensely personal command. This is an intensely personal command. Paul has just said, when you received Jesus, it should naturally lead to the conclusion that you walk in him. Understand what Paul's communicating here. When you, when you received salvation, you didn't just receive a set of beliefs. You didn't just receive a new faith. You didn't just receive a new religious book. You didn't just receive any of those things. When you became a Christian, you received a person. You received a person. And not just any person. Paul identifies Jesus in chapter 2 as Christ Jesus the Lord. You received the Lord of the universe when you became a Christian. This reception of the Lord is an intensely personal event. You entered into a personal, saving relationship with Jesus. And Paul's command to walk in him tells us that that saving relationship with Jesus was not just a one-time event that is then forgotten, but rather, he says, if you've received 
the person of Christ in your life. He's here to stay. He's not just here to be received. He is here to walk in. So walk in him if you have received him. You received a person, and now that person dominates and defines your life. You walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. Paul's call for the Colossians to walk in Jesus is given because he wants, to have, he wants the Colossians to have a life that is centered on Christ. He wants the Colossians to have a life that is centered on Christ. It's Christocentric. It is a Christ-centered walk that Paul is after. Walking in him, not by him or around him or near him, but in him. It is a Christ-centered walk. And for Paul, the Christ-centered walk is the natural conclusion of this saving event. And so he seeks, in our text this morning, to equip his readers to walk in a way that is, in fact, centered on Christ. Uh, That's what he's doing in, in these verses. He's seeking to equip his readers to walk in a way that is, in fact, centered on Christ. So we're going to structure this text this way this morning. Four attributes. Four attributes of a Christ-centered walk. Four attributes of a Christ-centered walk. Now, as we prepare to look at these attributes, I want us to understand that the conclusion of these verses is, I believe, the climactic purpose for why Paul even writes the book of Colossians. Many commentators highlight these two verses as the heart of the entire book. As the Colossians are being tempted, both doctrinally and practically, to not place Christ as the central purpose of their life, Paul is writing the very book of Colossians to combat that. Everything else in the book, whether he's correcting their theology or correcting their lifestyle, all flows from his desire that they live Christ-centered lives, that they walk in him. So he gives them, in this text, setting the tone for all that follows in the rest of Colossians, four attributes of a Christ-centered walk. The first attribute is this. It is sourced in the deep roots of salvation. A Christ-centered walk is sourced in the deep roots of salvation. Of salvation. Now, all four of these attributes that we're going to see this morning are found in verse 7, which flows from the command that we've just been looking at in verse 6. This first attribute is found in just the first few words of verse 7. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 7, where Paul writes, Having been firmly rooted having been firmly rooted. Some of your translations may just have the word rooted. There's a few nuances to that word that need to be drawn out. First, when you hear the word root, your mind probably goes to a tree, and that's exactly what Paul wants. This is horticultural terminology. 
He's using illustrative terminology throughout this text. In fact, he's already done so in his use of the word walk. It's illustrative terminology. Now he uses imagery, a visual representation of, of a tree with roots. He wants you to think of a tree or a bush in the ground that has taken root. The very proof of its life is in the fact that it has roots that develop and begin to drive down into the earth. That is the proof that the tree is even alive. It has roots. It is deeply rooted. Second, the word rooted, not only is it horticultural terminology, the word rooted is a verb, and it's, it's a verb that is past tense. When Paul uses this word rooted to describe something that happens in the life of a believer, he's writing to the Colossians about something that happened before the point at which Paul is writing. Now the other verbs that drive this verse, which we'll see in our next point, they're all present tense. But this one is past. Paul is making a point with the tense of this word. When Paul references their rooting, like a tree has roots, when Paul references their rooting, He's looking to something that has already taken place in their lives. I'll give you another nuance of this word that needs to be pulled out. The word rooted is a passive verb. What that means is that this is an event that was done to the Colossians. The Colossians did not root themselves. They were rooted by someone else. This is something that was done to the Colossians. Paul is not emphasizing their efforts in rooting themselves, but rather that someone else rooted them. So what is Paul referencing when he says, past tense, passive, you have been deeply rooted? What is he referencing here? I don't think there's any reason to look beyond what Paul has just spoken in verse 6 to identify what he is referencing with this term, firmly rooted. Let's read verse 6 again. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted. The rooting event that Paul refers to here is their salvation. It's their salvation. Paul is saying, you have been firmly rooted... Your salvation has firmly rooted you, so walk in Jesus. Now, this is very important. This rooting is not a teaching event that occurs after salvation. Being deeply rooted is not an indication that you are a mature Christian. It's not what he's getting at with this word. We'll get there later. In fact, Paul's actually writing the book of Colossians, incredibly concerned about the doctrine and maturity of this church. He's telling them, you've received Christ. You have life in Christ. Therefore, you are firmly rooted in him. If you are a Christian, you are like a tree that has taken root. The roots of a tree give the tree life and they give the tree stability. In other words, a tree with deep roots has what it needs to grow. A tree with deep roots has what it needs to grow. Salvation gives the firm roots that are required for a Christ-centered life. Now, this doesn't mean that if you are saved that you are fully grown, but rather 
that you have the life source and the stability that you need to grow. If you're a Christian, you have the essential roots for walking in Christ. Now note that I did not say if you are a mature Christian that you have the roots for walking in Christ. The roots that Paul is referencing here are not a result of maturity. They are a result of salvation. If you are saved, you are given deep roots. You have what you need to grow. The life source is in place. Your security is established. You are firmly rooted. We need to rehearse this. We need to rehearse this to ourselves. I have what I need to walk in Christ. Sometimes thoughts enter our mind in which we believe that we are lacking something that we need to mature and to grow, that there's something missing. I'm stagnant. My walk isn't reflecting Christ. And this isn't to say that there aren't things that we must embrace that help us to grow. We certainly will see that even later in this passage. But Paul wants his readers to know that they have the capacity. They have the capacity to grow by nature of their salvation. There isn't something out there. There isn't some magic pill that unlocks the door for walking in Christ. He has rooted you, Paul says. So if we zoom out, Paul has commanded them to walk in Jesus. Walk in him. Live your life in such a way that you are informed by him and enabled by him and modeled after him. And the first piece of information that he equips them with is their capacity to do so through Christ. You're alive. The roots are in place. The life source and stability has been given to you. You have the roots, so live in him. Walk in him. The first attribute of a Christ-centered walk is that it is sourced in the deep roots of salvation. Know. Know that if you are a Christian, you are deeply rooted. It doesn't mean that roots won't go deeper over the course of your life. It doesn't mean that growth and maturity is not an essential attribute of the crypt. We're about to get there. But that you are deeply rooted. He deeply roots everyone who he say he gives them the life source of Christ himself, the security that they need to grow. Recognize that, that if If you don't see growth, if you don't see growth and you are a Christian, it's not because you don't have the capacity for it. You are deeply rooted. He has made you to grow. So let's get to his second attribute where we see that coming to fruition. The second attribute of a Christ-centered walk is that it is marked by growth and endurance. The second attribute of a Christ-centered walk is that it is marked by growth and endurance. In our last point, the verb was past tense, looking back to what happened when they were saved. But the verbs that drive the rest of this verse 
change from past tense to present tense, looking not at what happened when they were saved, but what is actively happening in the life of every Christian. So the roots are in place. If you are a Christian, the roots are there. Which opens the door for Paul's next emphasis upon growth and endurance. Paul's going to use two verbs in this next attribute. He's going to use two verbs that kind of come together for a singular meaning. The first verb that we encounter in verse 7 is built up. Built up. Look again at verse 7. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. Now there's some nuance to the translation of this verse. Again, some of your Bibles may not have that expression and now that the New American Standard has. That's not necessarily originally there, but I do think it's an appropriate translation because as we pointed out, the first verb is pointing past tense. The rest of the verbs are, are what is actively happening. So he says, you were firmly rooted and now, noting the present tense shift, you are now built up in him. You are being built up in him. Once again, Paul employs very illustrative terminology. And it's unrelated to the imagery of walking that he's already employed and the imagery of rooting that he's already employed. He uses a third illustration here. It's construction terminology. Building something up to stack one stone upon the other to construct a building. Throughout the process of construction, the building is growing. It's it's getting taller. It's becoming more complete. It's the kind of terminology that Paul uses here. What Paul is after when he says, you're being built up on Christ, is for us to have this, this imagery of stones being stacked upon another as a building is being constructed. What Paul is after here is growth. Progressive growth. Progressive improvement. Progressive change. He's after the growth that marks the Christian walk. Because walking in Christ is marked by progressive growth. Paul says the Christian life is like a building. It's a building that is continually being constructed, continually being finished. And one day it will be finished, but right now it's being built up. I enjoy watching building projects. As long as I have no vested interest in them, they're fun to watch. I, I enjoy watching them. Sometimes you're driving and you regularly see, see a, uh, a building being constructed. They take a long time. Nothing ever seems to happen too quickly, but you can slowly see the building coming together. A major building project right now, the Kansas City Airport is being redone. It's a long-term project. Every four months or so, I'm dropping someone off or picking someone up, and I get to see the progress that is made. It's slow. It's steady. Sometimes the change is indiscernible, but it's clear that it's slowly being built up. Remember a long time ago, I would drive by a home every day that was being completely rebuilt. I drove by every morning and every evening, and Every day you could see little progressions that were made. But at some point along the process of construction, those, progressin- those progressions began to slow. It seemed like the construction had slowed down. 
And eventually, the improvements and the additions seemed to stop altogether. The scaffolding was still up. There were still dumpsters in the front yard. There was still much work to be done. And yet, went by one day and nothing changed. A week later and nothing changed. A month later and nothing changed. Remember, several years of nothing changing in this house that I used to drive by every day. Found out later that the owners had ran out of money. Construction stopped. The evidence of the fact that they had run out of money was that there wasn't any growth. There was no progress. There was no change. In a construction project, if you continually are visiting it and seeing nothing change, you'd become alarmed as to whether or not construction is even happening. Paul, using that kind of terminology, says, Christian, you are in process of being built up. You're you're like a building with stones being stacked one upon another. The Christian walk is a building, and it's always, always being built up as life flows through its roots. (laughs) Now, now let's pause and just acknowledge the... uh, the conflicting imagery that Paul is using here. If, if I speak in imagery, it quickly gets very confusing. I mean, the call is to walk with deep roots like a building. <laughs> Walking with deep roots seems fairly impossible. A building having deep roots, roots doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Walking like a building with deep roots definitely doesn't make a lot of Paul isn't after like a singular illustration here. He's, he's using a picture for every one of these stages. Walk being a picture for our life. Roots being a picture for our life and our security. And a building being a picture for our growth. He's using helpful imagery from each of these things individually to, to help us wrap our minds around what the the Christian life is supposed to look like. But he doesn't just use being built up. He gives us one other term here, one other present tense verb. Let's look at verse 7 again. Having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in him, and established in your faith. This is yet another word that Paul uses to describe progress in the Christian life. Established in your faith. Established in your faith. The word established can be translated strengthened. The word is used in context when opposition is in play. The one who is strengthened or the one who is established is is built to go the distance. They've become strong to resist opposition. Paul is communicating that a believer is being built up and is continually being strengthened. In other words, the the believer's change is not short-lived. It has endurance. It can resist what comes at it in life. The idea here is that The Christian walk is being built up and strengthened for the long term. It's not short-lived. As life flows through the roots of a Christian, they are like a building that is being built up and they are becoming more established in their faith. 
So, so this immediately points out that when Paul said, you are deeply rooted if you are not a Christian, roots give a tree security, they give a tree life, and yet, over the process of growth, those roots run deeper. The foundation of the home grows stronger. The believer becomes more and more secure, more and more strengthened, more and more able to resist the difficulties of the Christian life. This, this term strengthened or established is not tree imagery, but that imagery is still helpful here. There's a difference. We all recognize a difference between a young tree with healthy roots and a 50-year-old oak. Both may be firmly rooted Both may have what they need to survive, but one is far more established. One is far stronger. One, the young tree, has the potential to go the distance. The other is showing every sign that it will go the distance. In its strength, it can endure storms and not be tossed by winds and rain. Now, the location of this establishing, the location of this strengthening, Paul actually specifically identifies, look again at verse 7. We are being built up in him and established where? In our faith. The place that this strengthening and establishing happens is in your faith. Your faith is... Essentially, in this text, I believe the content of what you believe. One being established in the faith is one who is growing in their convictions. They are growing in their knowledge of God's Word. They are growing as they apply what they're learning of God over the process of the Christian life. They're growing as they apply that to their lives. As their theology is sharpening, the one who's being established is the one who is letting that theology dominate their lives as they apply it to the various circumstances of life. That's the person who's being established, who's growing, who's growing in their faith. They are growing in their knowledge and are applying that biblical truth to their life. So these statements by Paul... Several questions that these impress upon us. Am I being built up in Christ? Do I see that? Am I growing? Am I growing and making Him the central and driving source of my life? Am I being established in my faith? as I continue on this journey, is more knowledge leading to more conviction that drives endurance in the face of opposition. These attributes mark the Christ-centered walk. The one walking in Jesus is growing. The one walking in Jesus is being strengthened and established. Am I being built up in Christ? Am I being established in my faith? Or am I I like the building? 
There may have been some signs of initial progress, but eventually the construction stopped. And there's no evidence that the construction has has picked back up. If the answer to these questions for you is no, I'm not being built up. No, I'm not being established in my faith. I'm not seeing growth and endurance in my walk. First of all, let me encourage you to take heart because Paul is writing to those who need to hear this message. He's writing to a church that needs to hear this encouragement. You should be growing. You should be established. You must walk in Christ. He's telling them. He's telling them that this is what they must do. They must pursue these things. If your answer to either of those questions is no, if you've received Christ, then know, take heart, and meditate on the fact that you do have the roots of spiritual life. The roots are in place if you are, in fact, a Christian. Know that. Then, press in to the opportunities that God has given you to be built up in Christ and strengthened in your faith. Press in to relationships with other believers. Grow in your knowledge of biblical truth. Meditate on that truth and let it drive your convictions in your life. If you're faithful in those opportunities and those roots are in fact in place, if you're walking in them, if you're walking in Jesus, God will grow you. He will grow you. He will strengthen you. We've skipped over this detail till now, but just like we pointed out in the previous verb, both of these verbs are, are again, passive. They're passive. These verbs are that you are being built up. You are being strengthened. You are not building yourself up. That's, that's not Paul's emphasis here. You're not strengthening yourself. Someone else is doing it to you as you are faithful to walk in Jesus. So you walk in him, you pursue faithfulness, you live a life that is informed by him and enabled by him and modeled after him. He's the one who grows you. He will grow you. He will strengthen you. If you aren't seeing growth, if you aren't seeing endurance, if you're being tossed around by every wind, be faithful. Be obedient. And trust Christ who gave you the roots of salvation to also be the one who will grow you and establish you as you are faithful to him. The Christ-centered walk is sourced in the deep roots of salvation and it is marked by growth and endurance. Brings us to a third attribute of a Christ-centered walk in this text. A third attribute of a Christ-centered walk in this text is that a Christ-centered walk is informed by teaching. A Christ-centered walk is informed by teaching. Again, let's pick back up in verse 7. You have been firmly rooted and now are being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed. 
Paul gives a brief comment right in the middle of this verse, and seemingly it's a comment that's unnecessary to the verse. But it's actually central to his message. He says, You've been given roots, you've been built up, you've been established just as you were instructed. Now it's important for us to know, just quick history of the church in Colossae, we have no record and no indication that Paul was ever in Colossae. The only reason that he is even writing this letter is because a man named Epaphras had visited Paul to report some of the problems in the church. Paul is in prison as he writes this letter. Writing them a letter based on the report of a young, seemingly a young faithful pastor named Epaphras. Epaphras is the man who first preached the gospel and taught this church. Paul writes this phrase, just as you were instructed, to affirm the pastoral ministry and teaching of Epaphras to the Colossians. When Paul says this seemingly unnecessary comment, just as you were instructed, it seems like the verse would, would, would hold true without that statement in there. Why does Paul put it in there? It seems completely unnecessary. Which means he put it in there for a very specific purpose. When he said that, he's saying to the church, everything I'm telling you right now is consistent with what you were taught from the beginning. Paul wants his hearers to know that the message he is delivering to them now is consistent with the instruction that they have received all along. The Apostle Paul is actually pointing the Colossians back to the previous preaching that they had received from Epaphras. He's also implicationally pointing them forward to future explanation and teaching and preaching that they are going to hear around the Word of God. He's pointing them to the instruction they have received and the instruction that they have yet to receive. Now, the church that Paul is writing to, this church has fallen into some strange doctrines. Much of the book of Colossians is written to correct the strange doctrines that have leaked into this church. Worldly teachers and philosophies have risen among the congregation. They've neglected the gospel teaching that they once received from Epaphras. They've turned instead to worldly philosophies. As an apostle, Paul is uniquely situated to write them a letter to point them back to the leaders that they should trust. This is Paul. He's the apostle. When you got a letter from Paul, it was a big deal. But Paul uses this opportunity not just to speak truth, but to point them back to their leaders who did speak truth. He affirms Epaphras. The people who taught you this truth of walking in Christ from the beginning, Paul says they're the ones you should have listened to. Paul is actually rebuking them in this phrase. I'm only repeating what you should have taught. You've heard this before. I'm an apostle and I'm happy to straighten you out, Paul says. But you actually had what you needed. You had what you needed. The Christ-centered walk is informed by biblical teaching. It's informed 
by biblical teaching. And the God-ordained environment for biblical instruction is in the church. It's in the church. I'm not normally the one who stands in this pulpit. So it's easier for me to say what I'm about to say than someone like Pastor Rick. He doesn't often say things like this. He's in a difficult spot to do so. If you want a Christ-centered walk, if you want a Christ-centered walk, you must view the instruction that you receive from God's word in the context of your local church as the most important words that you hear each week. If you want a Christ-centered walk, you must view the instruction that you receive from God's word in the context of your local church as the most important words that you hear each week. Paul is redirecting these people to center their lives on Christ, and he cannot help but point them back to the instruction that they had received from Epaphras. Paul says, I'll tell you what you need, but you've already heard this. You need to listen to what was taught you by faithful men. We need to treasure. We need to treasure the message that comes from this pulpit. Cherish it. Prioritize it. Be ready to receive it. Think upon it. Apply it. Because a Christ-centered walk is informed by biblical teaching. That's where Paul points this church, and I believe that's where he would point us. There are certainly other ways to supplement a Christ-centered walk outside of a weekly sermon in the context of the church. You can study God's Word for yourself. You can read good books. You can have Christ-centered relationships. Those are all good and even biblical things. But in this text, Paul makes sure to point them back to the instruction that they have received as that which should inform their walk. A Christ-centered walk is informed by teaching. It brings us to one final attribute. One final attribute. The fourth attribute of a Christ-centered walk is that it is filled with thanksgiving. It is filled with thankfulness. This final attribute is perhaps unexpected. It feels oddly specific in a list of encouragements to walk and to grow and to endure, which have plenty of application for us, but are generally vague. Grow, endure, walk. And yet here, he drills in on one specific attribute, one specific characteristic of the Christian life. Look again at verse 7. Let's read the whole thing. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing with gratitude. That phrase doesn't feel like it belongs in this list of encouragements. But in Paul's writings, the command to gratitude appears over and over as the attitude that marks the Christian walk. Walking in Jesus cannot happen apart from a spirit of gratitude. 
Walking in Jesus cannot happen apart from a spirit of gratitude. That is thankfulness. It is the natural response to an undeserved gift. It is the overflow of a heart that has received something by the graciousness of another. Thankfulness must be, it should be, the natural disposition of anyone who has received Christ Jesus the Lord. We've acknowledged so far in this verse that every one of these verbs that we've seen are passive. God is the primary actor. These are done to us. He gives us roots. He grows us. He strengthens us. They're all passive until this one. You have been firmly rooted by God. You are being built up in him, by him. You have been established in your faith by God. You've been instructed by another. Paul finishes this verse and this call then with the attitude that must flow from the one for whom so many incredible gifts have been given. All of those have been given to you. So respond with gratitude. It's not passive, it's active. This one is on us. Now, you know, theologically, that if we respond in gratitude, it's only because God is at work in us, but Paul's change of emphasis here is important. All of these things are done to you. Here is your response. With gratitude and thanksgiving, Paul sees gratitude and thanksgiving as the attitude that should accompany all that takes place in our walk. Let me show you a quick example of this later in Colossians. I preaching through the book of Colossians right now, and I encountered this and it shocked me. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Paul's giving them various instructions about what it looks like to be faithful in the various opportunities that God has given them, what it looks like to walk in Christ. Watch in Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. The unexpected appearance of thankfulness again and again. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Those are three very different commands. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, but do it with thankfulness. Sing to one another, encourage each other, admonish each other, but do it with thankfulness. And also really, whatever you do, word or deed, be Thankful. Thankfulness is the attribute of the Christian life that, that governs all of these other activities. Paul wants thankfulness to occur in all that we do. He's given them various commands, but they're all to be conducted in a spirit of thankfulness. Paul specifically says back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 7, he uses the word overflowing with thankfulness or gratitude. Overflowing with it. The word means that it consists in excess. We're to have more than we even know what to do with it. Thankfulness is not a 
according to Paul, to be making sporadic appearances, our spirits should be overflowing fountains of gratitude. It's a challenge to be thankful. Not because there's not enough reason, there certainly is, but it is a challenge for us to remain thankful throughout the course of the Christian walk, throughout the course of the day. But it's a challenge that we all must embrace. It's part of what it looks like to walk in Jesus. Thankfulness so quickly escapes us. Meditation on what God has done for us and what God is doing in us should produce thanksgiving if those things are rightly understood. If you can't be thankful, then you don't understand what God has done for you. A right understanding of what God has done for us leads to thankfulness. And if you struggle to be thankful, which we all do, it's because we stop meditating on the wonder of what has been done for us. Walking in Christ is demonstrated by one who is filled with thankfulness. Well, there's much to consider in this text. Much to consider in this text, but ultimately, we're left with the question, am I walking in Jesus? Am I walking in Jesus? Is my life informed by him, obedient to him, enabled by him? If the answer is no, if you evaluate your life and you say, I don't see it, I'm not walking in him. There's, there's two possibilities. There's two possibilities. You may be a believer who needs encouraged and challenged in your walk. You may be a believer who needs to be more faithful to the opportunities that God has given you that bring life through the roots that God has given every believer. That's what the Colossians needed. Paul's going to lay out what it looks like for this church to be faithful in the various disciplines that will lead to their growth. And he's going to do that for the rest of the book of Colossians. Here's what it looks like to walk in Christ. There's another option. If your answer to the question, am I walking in Christ, is no, you may not have received Christ. Paul only calls them to walk in Christ because they have received Christ. If you haven't received Christ, you can't live in him. If you've not repented of your sin and placed your trust in Jesus who gave his life on the cross so that you might have life in him, if you've not submitted yourself to the Lord, then you cannot walk in him. You have no roots. So you can't grow. The solution is receive Christ. And he will give you roots. And as you are faithful to him, he will grow you. 